Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. Today is Sunday, December 18, 2016. The share ID for Friday, December 16th, is 9365. That's 9365. This morning, A Vision for You presents Same Disease, Different Manifestation, Thoughts from a Recovered Bulimic. We come to this program as a result of the constant frustration, repeated defeat, and continuous despair we experience in our disease of compulsive overeating and related manifestations. As addicts, we obsessively pursued feeling a sense of ease and comfort, no matter how bad it made us feel. It's irrational, but that is the course of addiction. Using the 12 steps, bulimics, anorexics, and compulsive overeaters have found freedom from their obsessive, compulsive relationship with food. The promise of the 12-step process is a personality change, a spiritual awakening sufficient to bring about recovery. By following the 12 steps, we come to a deep level of freedom from our deadly disease and obsessions, obsessions that once dominated our minds and dictated the course of our lives. Such is the paradox of the 12-step recovery process. Strength arising out of complete defeat and weakness, the loss of one's old life as a condition for finding a new one. Joining us this morning is Amy G., a recovered compulsive overeater and bulimic from Maryland. Amy is dedicated to the 12-step way of life and to carrying this message of recovery to those who still suffer. Good morning to you, Amy G. Good morning, Leah. Can you hear me? Loud and clear. Thank you very much. Great, Leah. Thank you, and thank you so much for asking me to share, and it's an honor and a privilege to do so. Well, as Leah said, my name is Amy G. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater from Maryland, also recovered bulimic. And um, um, I just... um, well, because you all can't see me, let me qualify a little bit. I am a tad shy of 5'8", and at my top weight, I was at 170, and I think I put on another 15 or 20. I just never got on the scale. At my lowest weight, I had an anorexic stint for a while. I was at 102, so that's about 30 pounds uh, less than what I weigh now. And with my bulimia which was one of the main manifestations, as I had mentioned, of my compulsive overeating and my disease. I was puking probably 10, 12 times a day, uh, binging around the clock multiple days. Um, It didn't start out that way, but that's where it led to, and that's what this disease uh, did to me. By the grace of God, I came into my first Overeaters Anonymous meeting in March of 1983, and I struggled for a number of years with um, my agnosticism and my bulimic tendencies, and I'll get into that. And um, but really came down to it, dying in desperate and doom. They say the three D's of this disease. Three D's of this disease when you're dying desperate and doomed. And that's where I was in December seventh of 1987. So. Um, Gratefully, I celebrated my 29th anniversary of being recovered um, last December uh, 7th. I truly believe, though, this is a one-day-at-a-time program. If I can do it, you can do it. 
because we have these awesome, wonderful um, 12 steps and we have this program. So I have a few 24 hours and I'm blessed, but that's what I see it because we really do have a daily reprieve contingent on the maintenance of our spiritual condition. It's the same for me. It's the same for all of us who are recovered and I'm grateful. So I didn't, you know, start out being bulimic or anything like that, but by the time I was 14 or 15, I was full on into this disease. I was, note, I was already a compulsive overeater. The bulimia didn't come till later. I was full swing into the two aspects of this disease, the physical allergy and the mental obsession. I didn't know that, but what I did know was that I couldn't understand why people could eat one cookie and stop with that. You know, to say that the the chocolate they were eating or the cake they were eating was too rich. I, I didn't understand why the food called to me, why I craved certain foods. Um, I was living overseas when I was younger from about 7 to 12, and we had many wonderful privileges of uh, maids and chauffeurs and, and a cook and and I can remember even my earliest memories are of food where I was sitting in school and I would be watching the clock because I couldn't wait for the 3 o'clock bell to ring so that I could get picked up and driven home because I knew that the cook would have my favorite food there, my favorite pastry, my favorite pie, my favorite cookies. That was what I lived for. And I was thin. Uh, I was a big swimmer. And um, I... Remember other things like we used to get glucose powder when uh, it helped raise your blood sugar right before a swim event. And I remember, you know, it's a foreshadowing of my cocaine and amphetamine addiction to maintain my weight. And I remember following around that white glucose powder so that I could eat it whether I was swimming or not. But again, I I wasn't, you know, fat. I didn't have any other consequences of my disease and I really had no clue. And when we moved back to the United States, to say I had difficulty adjusting what is, was an understatement in elementary school. I had uh, green hair, I was knock-kneed, pigeon-toed, braces, a foot taller than everybody else in my class, and it was the middle of the school year. And um, I couldn't cope. And my family, um, you know, just didn't know how to handle me. And I just remember food for me was a sense of ease and comfort, exactly as it's described in the big book. And by the time I was 13, 12, 13, I got involved with drugs and alcohol and getting high, which created the munchies, which just completely did, you know, was the end all for my compulsive overeating. And um, I remember being with a friend of mine at the beach at age 14, and she said, you know, we were getting high and getting the munchies, and she said, "Um, look, I have the magic cure. You just go ahead and stick your finger down your throat, and that's it. You have the magic cure, and I thought it was a magic cure, and um, I thought it was a way to get thin, but the fact that this disease is so cunning and baffling is that the realization was down the road was that I, I didn't wasn't using my bulimia to get thin. I was using it to try and not get fat. My bulimia was just another answer. It was my crazy answer, of course. It was my solution to the consequences of my compulsive overeating. I didn't want to be fat. For me, it was terrifying to be fat because everything I lived for was what the world sold me, the bill of goods that if you're thin, somehow you're well. I was already warped in my thinking. I was eating my allergic substances that were triggering everything where I could not stop once I started. 
you know, this is a disease that says that we can't stop from starting and we can't stop once we start. And, um, you know, it's also to say that just because we come into these rooms and we're not obese doesn't mean that we're not sick. And that was certainly the case for me because I actually came into OA underweight. I remember one time a woman saying to me, an obese woman saying to me, you know, I'm your worst nightmare. What I do to humiliate myself in public with being obese, you do it to yourself in private, worshiping the porcelain toilet bowl 20 times a day or whatever you do. So don't justify it to me that you're healthy just because you're thin. And that's what I did. But she she was right on. I somehow justified that this insanity of sticking my finger down my throat and later later on ladles and spoons and knives down my throat was somehow sane and rational. And it talks about it in step one that it says, you know, we admitted, um, admitted we are powerless over food and that our lives have become unmanageable. And in step one in the 12 and 12, it talks about that we have warped our minds with such an obsession for compulsive or destructive eating in our cases that only an act of providence can relieve, it, relieve us of it. And, and, and I couldn't tell you that my life was unmanageable even though here I am binging and purging. And that's how crazy and, dis- and cunning and baffling this disease is. Again, more D's of this disease, denial, delusion, defiance, the delusion. You know, I thought my, I didn't think my life was unmanageable. I mean, I knew puking wasn't good, but I thought if I could just get the right diet or something like that, that my life would somehow magically in a fantasy come together. I mean, talk about twisted. I thought I just needed that right diet. It was just unmanageable because I couldn't handle my food. But my whole life had been taken over. I mean, I was literally a prisoner. And the thing about this disease, it's so progressive. And with the binging and puking, it allowed around-the-clock eating for me. I mean, it used to be that I would eat until I was so full that I would pass out because I couldn't fit one more bite in. But with the purging, all I had to do was empty my stomach And then I could continue to go back to eating, which allowed for around the clock two and three days, which is what it was for me my freshman year in college, of binging and purging. You know, plus the additional obsessing about where to get the food, what order to eat the food in, for example, and multiple stall versus single stall bathrooms. Talk about being a prisoner to your life. Somehow, I rationalized this with Spain, but this was what I was doing. You know, and I remember I almost choked to death um, a couple of times because my favorite binge foods were sugar, high fat, and flour foods, which meant pastries and breads and peanut butter and jelly and those types of things. And even though I tried to eat them in, in an order that made it easy to puke up, there were two times that I almost choked to death on the dough. And I remember, and this is the length that this disease takes you, I remember I needed to either call to call for help or I was going to choke to death. And at that point, in dregs in the bottom of my disease, I thought to myself, I'd rather die than than I'd rather die and choke to death than call for help. And praise God or the angels looking after me, I was able to not choke to death, nor call for help, actually. But that's where this disease took me my freshman year in college. Um, I remember uh, this one time, and I don't say this to, to gross people out, but this is what the bulimia, you know, did to me and where I was at with my compulsive overeating. The shame, this disease just ravaged, ravages us uh, on so many levels in shame and humiliation. 
and I hated myself. I absolutely loathed myself, and I was suicidal. I was, I was, was considering. I was in Northfield, Minnesota, um, at St. Olaf College. It's like you know, 30 below, and I was uh, considering putting a toothbrush and a Harlequin novel and a backpack and hitchhiking in a T-shirt in 30-degree 30 below weather. I fantasized being picked up by a trucker and killed. I mean, that's what I was thinking. That was my thinking at that time. And um, somehow, again, I'm like rationalizing, you know, this behavior. But there was this one night, it was just a wretched binge. My my um, roommate had what they call an HTH and some of you all have heard this story, but I, I'm going to repeat it, which HTH, which is a hometown honey. And um, she went home for the weekend, and I took the money that my parents had sent me for books. I was failing out of school, and I went to the grocery store to buy, I'm talking grocery bags full of food. And, again, the denial and the delusion, I literally had a 10-minute conversation with the checkout clerk about what foods I should have, what desserts I should have for this party I was going to have. Well, of course, it was a party of one. And then I went back to my dorm room and I locked the door. Now, the dorm room has multiple stalls, bathrooms, so that was not somewhere that I could puke. So I got a large trash can, I put a green trash bag in it, and I proceeded to binge and puke in that trash bag throughout the night over the entire weekend until the end of the weekend when that green bag was full of puke and vomit. And I snuck out at about, I don't know, 3 o'clock in the morning, and I went to go throw the bag into the big trash bin. And it was so heavy that I, when I threw it, I heaved ho and I missed. And it fell onto the street, and it burst open. And, of course, I ran back in. There was nothing I could do. And that next day, all the counselors, the people that found this bag of puke on the floor, I mean, on the, the street floor, went running around the rooms, knocking on doors, going, are you the bulimic? Are you the bulimic? Like, I was going to confess to that. But I never forget when they came knocking on my door. And I opened the door. I thought for sure they knew it was me. My whole face, I felt the blood rush to my face in shame and humiliation. I can still think of it this day, the hatred and the self self-loathing because I knew it was me and I knew that this behavior was crazy. I was also stealing money from my roommate, stealing money from dorm rooms. People had to start locking their dorm rooms because I was the thief in the dorm that was stealing food, that was stealing money so that I can continue in this behavior. And this is insanity. And it talks about it a lot in the big book. And some of this behavior is not just exclusive to um, you know, bulimics. You know, it's the things that we do for our, for our alcoholic substances, for our food. And the big book describes it very, very clearly, this mental obsession and this physical allergy with a couple of stories. And some of my favorites are the one with Fred in the milk, where he thinks that it's okay to put whiskey in the milk, that somehow he rationalized, like I rationalized sticking my finger down, down my throat, that it was okay to do that. I mean, just to give you a summary, you know, Fred is out now working for a company, it's a car company that he used to own. So he's a little bit irritated about that, but doesn't think much about it. And he goes to go do some work in, a, of course, a restaurant that has a bar. And, of course, we're seeing all this clearly, the precursor to what's going to happen, but he doesn't know that because he doesn't understand the mental obsession. He doesn't understand being restless, irritable, and discontent. He probably was pretty discontent about not, having, not owning the company that he's now working for. 
But anyways, the story goes, suddenly the thought crossed my mind that if I were to put an ounce of whiskey in the milk, it couldn't hurt me on a full stomach. He ordered one, and then he ordered another. And then on page 37, you know, it goes, you may think this is an extreme case, but to us it is not far-fetched. For this kind of thinking has been characterized in every single one of us, as it was for me. There was always the curious mental phenomenon that parallel with our sound reasoning, there inevitably ran some insanely trivial excuse for taking that first drink. Our sound reasoning failed to hold us in check. The insane idea won out. And further down it says there, were little, there was little serious or effective thought during the period of premeditation of what the terrific consequences might be. And that was, that was me. That was the disease. This, just plop out alcohol and put in food, and you had me exactly, those behaviors, those attitudes, those mannerisms. That was me. And talk about the terrific consequences. Oh, my gosh. Uh, I, I, I mean, I can go on and on about what the bulimia and the compulsive overeating was doing to me. I mean, I was malnourished. I was flying up and down the scale in weight, for one thing. I had burst blood vessels in my eyes and my face. The enamel on my teeth has been destroyed. I have more crowns and fillings and uh, in my teeth than regular teeth. Um, I had binges lasting three days long where I was failing out of school. I lived in a manic way, which was I was either starving, compulsively exercising, counting calories, thinking about food all the time, all of those things, or the door was shut and I was binging and purging. Like I said, I was failing school. I was stealing money. I had broken knuckles that almost on a constant basis because when I looked at myself in the mirror, I punched the mirror and I would break and I would have to have my knuckles stitched up. I would punch dead frames. Like I said, I was suicidal. And the worst of it all was this constant running of my brain. I couldn't stop my brain. One of the promises says we will know serenity, we will find serenity, and we will know peace that it talks about on page 82 and 83. Every time I read that, I want to cry because the, the obsession was ravaging me. I couldn't stop thinking about food, calories, scales, binging, purging, where to purge, how to purge. I mean, it was a constant litany in my brain. I wanted to stop my brain. I mean, some of my binges were just about numbing out. I wanted that ease and comfort, the delusion of what that food brought me, even for one second, if I could stop my brain and numb my brain for one second. That's what I wanted. You know, and if you can't relate to those uh, consequences, the terrific consequences that it talks about on page 37, uh, we can go to page 52 in the big book. And I remember someone on the Vision for You line, uh, might have been Kim G, said, you know, take out the word you about the bedevilments and put in the word I. And I loved it. So here we are on page 52. I'm having trouble with personal relationships. Well, my only relationship was with the food. I couldn't control my emotional nature. That is for sure. I'm prey to misery and depression. I couldn't make a living. Well, for me, I was failing out of school. Feeling of uselessness and fear, it was terrifying to be so out of control and not know what to do. For me, for me, compulsively overeating, binging and sticking my finger down my throat was my reflex. That was my only reaction in coping with life. We were unhappy. I mean, I was unhappy. I couldn't seem to be of real help. 
to other people? Absolutely. I couldn't help myself. And that was where I was when I walked into my first Overeaters Anonymous meeting in Northfield, Minnesota on March in March of 1987. I was living my life by the numbers on the scale. It told me whether or not I could participate in life and how I would feel about myself. I was a broken woman. I was a compulsive overeater and a full-fledged bulimic. And let me just stop here and say something. When I walked into that first Overeaters Anonymous meeting, um, sort of a side note, you know, I heard people talk for the first time in my life about things they were doing with food that I had never hear, heard anyone else do. I literally thought I was the only one that was doing the things I was doing with food. I mean, they say this is a disease that tells you you don't have a disease. It's a disease that wants to get up in your head, isolate you, and kill you. And for the first time, I heard hope. And I heard this the other day. Shout out to my friend who gave me this one. When you break out hope, it's hear other people's experience. And that's the hope I got. I heard that in that meeting. And thank God that Overeaters Anonymous meeting was there. And, you know, and I realize and I have, I know that some meetings are strong and some meetings are toxic and some need, some meetings need to go the way of the dodo bird. But thank God someone had that meeting there. As a newcomer, I didn't know whether it was a strong meeting or a weak meeting. I knew that I just needed some help. And 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 I I know people say that you know some meetings can be the killing fields for compulsive overeaters and I get that, but the meeting was there and I realize it's only a beginning and that we need to have stronger you know overeaters anonymous meetings in our area, and and the meetings that are toxic that break traditions and put principle put personalities over principles, you know those are the meetings that that are not the good meetings to have but we have to be on the firing line of where the meetings are planted if we want to grow and change. And I certainly have been uh, one of those uh, that have said that. I mean, you would have caught me. I would not have been caught dead in local Overeaters Anonymous meetings in my area a long time ago. But I got picked up by the scruff of my neck, I will have to say, by someone who told me something. And she said to me, you know, go to page 102 in the big book. And if we go there now, it says, your job now is to be at the place where you may be of maximum helpfulness to others. So never hesitate to go anywhere you can be helpful. You should not hesitate to visit the most sordid spot on earth on such an errand. Keep on the firing line of life with those motives, and God will keep you unharmed. And she said to me, if if you're on the firing line and you're recovered, obviously we have to be recovered because we can't give what we don't have. You know, where are we going? Are we staying in strong meetings or are we going to carry them out to the meetings that need the strength? You know, I heard Harlan talk about a renaissance in Vision for You, and it's true. Vision for You is creating us, bringing us back to the basics. But we also need a revival where we're taking the strength that we have, we're learning from the big book and taking our big books and carrying them over to our local Overeaters Anonymous meeting. And someone told me the other day that three, there's a three F's of making a strong meeting besides bringing your, your big book. And, for example, if I'm at a meeting where someone is sharing, well, you know, I binged, but it's okay, my sponsor said it was okay, or something like that that would have had me screaming, running screaming for the hills, 
someone told me with 44 years of experience in this program said, you know, the F, the, the three F's of the meeting of how to turn that meeting around. And it was, you know what, after that share, to share yourself if you're recovered. And she said, she says, you know, I know exactly how you feel. And I have been there and I have felt the same. But by the grace of God in these 12 steps in this big book, I have found another way. Let me show you how. The three F's, felt, feel, felt, and found. And I think that is, is absolutely fantastic. And it's what we should be trying to do in the rooms of Overeaters Anonymous. And I'll get off that high horse, uh, but I just feel it's so important for us to grow where it's planted. And thank God that OA meeting was there. Because if it wasn't there, I wouldn't have stood a chance of living. I, this disease was taking me down, and it was killing me. And like I said, I walked into Overeaters Anonymous in March of 83, and I still had almost five years of torturous hell to go because I hit the wall of my agnosticism, and I didn't want to work this program as it was as it's dictated in the first 164 pages. I did the half measures thing, and I wanted it to work my way. And I spent all those years of hell. But the saying is, keep coming back, don't walk out five minutes before the miracle, and just keep coming back. And eventually this disease will do what this disease does, and that's what it did to me. And it had me dying and desperate and doomed and willing to work this program like my life depended upon it, where there was no other option. And, you know, they say that OA is like the mafia. Once you go in, you never get out because it ruins all your binges because you know too much. And that was the case for me because I started learning things about this disease in my meeting. And I started, and every binge was like, are they right? Is this who I am? God help me. I don't know. I don't believe in God. And there was a huge struggle there. But finally, I knew that if I took another compulsive bite, that I was going to die. And I needed to do what was asked in this program. It says half measures availed us nothing in the chapter, how it works. We stood at the turning point. You know, we beg of you to be fearless and thorough from the very, very start. And I had to be willing to do that. I could not binge and puke anymore. I got to a point where I was puking up blood, and I knew it wasn't going to stop. It was not going to stop until I surrendered, until I put the food down and I surrendered. You know, if I want to buy a soda from the soda machine and it's 95 cents or $1.25 or whatever, I can't put in a $1.22 and hope to get the soda. I got to put in the $1.25 if I'm going to get the soda. And the same is for me. I either got to buy into what this program says to do and putting the food down and working these steps, or I'm not going to get what this program is offering and all the wonderful promises that it says. And I'm not going to get the freedom from the obsession in my mind. And more than anything else, I wanted to stop the obsession in my mind. So like I said, I came into this program finally in 87, willing to do whatever was asked for me. I remember hearing someone say, and she's on the line right now, I don't care if I have to crawl on my hands and knees backwards in pigtails and pajamas to China. I was going to do it. It says again in how it works that some of these steps we balked. And trust me, I thought this was some crazy shit when I heard about what I needed to do. But I was willing to do it because I knew there was no other way for me to go. You all had what I wanted, and I wanted what you had. So this came up to my first three steps 
and working the second and third step. And I ran into that wall of agnosticism. But as I worked the steps, I realized that deep down, I mean, I truly believe that my agnosticism was more about my fear of letting go of control, which is big with us bulimics, or at least it was with me. Fear of letting go of control and my ego and my willingness more than anything else. I was so willful. My family's motto was, all it takes is a little willpower. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You can do anything you put your mind to. I thought I was the only one, that I had to do it all for me. And I truly believe that that letting go of control in my ego, it was more about that with my agnosticism than really about God's existence, you know, whether God was actually there. I mean, I truly felt, and somehow I, I, I came to believe this. I don't know, you know, that I was the alpha and the omega. Maybe it's just my basic humanity. But I felt and I needed and I wanted to play God. And they say this is a program of ego reduction, and that is exactly the case. My disease had my ego reduced to, to nothing or less than nothing. So for me to turn to God or turn to the program or turn to those who had recovered, which is what it was for me for a while to even get started, to even make a beginning, that was, that was where I was at. Because I, I failed miserably. I failed miserably on my own trying to play God myself. You know, the disease beat and pummeled me to the ground, and then the bulimia eviscerated me. Sticking my finger down my throat, again, as I said, was a reflex. It was as much of my compulsive overeating as my compulsive overeating. For me to binge meant, to be, meant, meant that I was going to be bulimic. I mean, that was, that was two went that way together. That was my manifestation of my compulsive overeating. And the fear. The fear of, of all of that, I mean, that's what propelled me. I mean, call it a healthy fear or not, but when the fear of where you are gets bad enough, you'll move. And that's when I finally surrendered to what the program asked of me. I put my agnosticism aside, and I became honest, open, and willing to practice these steps. And those were my first, you know, first two and three, one, two, and three steps. And then I got down to the business of working step four, because we all know it's not just about the food. You know, the bottom line was that there was way more to this disease than meets the mouth, if you know what I mean, and that my problem centers in my mind and that my problems of my own making, I'm pulling these quotes out of the big book, you know, that I needed a personality change sufficient to bring about my recovery. I kept saying that to myself. This is why I'm doing these steps. I have a spiritual malady. I have a hole in my soul that I tried to fill with a knife and a fork. And if I didn't have that personality change that would connect me to that power, you know, then I was doomed to go back to being restless, irritable, to getting restless, irritable, and discontent. So I had to get into my step work. And I had to get into what I call the, you know, the causes and the conditions. And for me, you know, it talks about, in the big book on page 62 about the selfishness and self-centeredness, that we had to get rid of it or it kills us, and that resentments and anger have the power to kill us. But I tell you, what I got down to was fear. I got down to fear, and it talks about it on page 67, about being the evil and corroding thread. And let me just read that uh, on page 67. It says, notice in doing your fourth step that the word fear is bracketed alongside all the difficulties with Mr. Brown, Mr. Jones, the employer, and the wife, etc. It says, this short word somehow touches about every aspect of our lives. It was an evil and corroding thread 
The fabric of our existence was shot through with it. It set in motion trains of circumstances which brought us misfortune. We felt we didn't deserve. But did we not ourselves set the ball rolling? Sometimes we think fear ought to be classed with stealing. It seems to cause more trouble. And that was absolutely the case for me. It was an evil and corroding thread. And what was the fear for me? As the bulimic and this control freak that I was, the fear of not being able to control my life, which was also the springboard for my agnosticism. I was afraid. I was afraid. I was afraid. And that meant I felt I had to control my life. Through doing this step work, particularly four through seven, was the realization that somehow I thought if I didn't control something, that my life, I wasn't safe, that my life was going to fall apart, that I had to control and keep my circumstances, my life, those around me, control, because somehow that made me okay. That made me feel safe. And that took serious fourth through seventh step work. But it, it, it gave me an idea and an understanding of what this fear was doing to my life, fear and control. And let me give you an example. I, I found out about this vicious cycle through this step work in my life, particularly because of this fear and control. And I used to think it was all just about fear of being and getting fat, but it was so much more than that. So, for example, the more I feared, the more I controlled. I tried to control my life. I tried to control others. So the more I feared, the more I controlled. The more I controlled, the angrier I got because life didn't go my way. Life isn't like that. It's not a fantasy. I pissed people off. They retaliated. The angrier I got. You know, they say bulimia is a lot about anger, and I can understand that now. But the angrier I got, the more restless, irritable, and discontent I got. So I sought solace, which was the food. So, of course, I binged, I purged, I, I got going on my allergic substances, and I couldn't stop. And then came the fear, the fear of gaining weight, which brought on the bulimia, which would start the cycle all over again because then I would purge, I would hate myself, and then I'd have to, quote, pull myself up by my belt straps, belt straps and try to do it again and try to control again and try to control my life again and try to control through my food intake through diets and try to count the numbers on the scale and try to control my crazy family and try to control. And again, I would try to control other people. It would make me angry because they wouldn't do what I wanted and I would be restless, irritable, discontent. And then I would seek ease and comfort and then I would binge and purge. And that again and again, do you see the cycle that I'm talking about? I mean, it describes it perfectly on page 61 of the big book, where we talk about the guy who wants to run the show. It says here, on page 61, the first requirement is that we are convinced that life run on self-will can hardly be a success. On that basis, we are almost always in collision with something or somebody, even though our motives are good. Most people try to live by self-propulsion. Each person is like an actor, who wants to run the show, which is me, is forever trying to arrange the lights, the ballet, the scenery, and the rest of the players in his own way. His, and if only his arrangements would stay put. I tried so hard to keep my arrangements where I wanted them. You know, and if I did that, then I would be happy. And if you go further down, it says, you know, we are egotistical, selfish, and dishonest. But as with most humans, we're more likely to have the mix of being good, wanting to do well, and being egotistical and selfish. And it was me about being more egotistical and selfish than anything. But what usually happens, the show doesn't come off very well. He begins to think life doesn't treat him right. He decides to exert himself more. 
He becomes on the next occasion still more demanding or gracious as the case may be. Still, the play does not suit him. Admitting he may be somewhat at fault, he is sure that other people are more to blame. He becomes angry, indignant, self-pitying. What is his basic trouble? Is he not really a self-seeker even when trying to be kind? Is he not trying to wrest satisfaction and happiness out of this world if only he arranges it well? You know, and it goes down further. Our actor is self-centered and ego and egocentric. I mean, this is what I tried to do. I tried to control my life and those around me, and I couldn't. And what was my answer? You know, it was the food. So, again, this step work was so valuable for me. Four through seven, I mean, this is what this program is about. Uh, eight through nine was a complete relief of shame and guilt for me. For the first time in my life, I was able to join the human race. The bulimia for me causes so, caused so much shame and lo- self-loathing, like I said, that eight and nine was the most freeing thing. I think there's a reason why the promises are after steps eight and nine in the big book because it says before we're even halfway through. And for me, it was a gigantic exhale of all of this hatred and self-loathing that the bulimia caused and the compulsive overeating. Again, this stuff and this shame is not exclusive to us as bulimics, but for me, as a bulimia, it is it is wicked. It is wicked. And then, of course, we have the growing spiritually and service in steps 10 through 12. And I and 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 what is so wonderful about this program is that. I mean, I can tell you I was a bulimic as bulimic can be. I was doing everything a bulimic could do to try to answer my compulsive overeating. But as soon as I started working the steps, I put the food down. I got rid of my allergic and alcoholic substances in my food plan. I put boundaries around my food. As soon as I started working the steps, the compulsion to purge went with it because I only really wanted to purge when I was binging. And thank God I wasn't binging anymore. Um, I still, bulimic or not, or anorexic or not, as they had said, the answer is in these steps. It's in these steps. And I just want to say that as a, as a bulimic, you know, I get a lot of questions, having been around for a few 24, with people calling me in the program who say, um, you know, look, I'm, I'm a sponsor, and I have someone who is a bulimic, and I'm not one. You know, whether should I sponsor them? You know, in my humble opinion, I would say absolutely. The instructions, the answers in the big book, you know, they are the same. The, the, it doesn't matter what the manifestation is. The solution is the same. And so absolutely, can I, you know, I can sponsor a compulsive overeater just as I can sponsor another bulimic, and the same vice versa goes for sponsors. You know, we, we absolutely have the solution that is in these first 164 pages. And it's not exclusive, and it's not any different, just because the manifestation is different. The disease is the same, the mental obsession, and the allergy is the same. And so we have the tools, excuse me, we have the steps to work this plan to recover, whether we're bulimic, anorexic, compulsive overeater, alcoholic, drug addict, you name it. But I will say, the big book does require complete and utter abstinence, and I think that is on, that's written on Roman numeral, um, you know, 28. And I think there are some things that I will say if someone called me and said, you know, um, I'm sponsoring a bulimic, you know, what what's going to be different here? There are a few things 
that I would counsel them on or I would say just based on my humble experience as a bulimic, you know, take what you need and leave the rest. But this is what I have come to find pretty common when it uh, when dealing with uh, me as a bulimic and what I needed and what I desperately needed help with. And um, the first thing was was a structured food plan. As a bulimic, I needed that more than anything else. I needed to have clear boundaries, the line in the sand for me about what was abstinent and what was not. I mean, if you had told me at my first OA meeting, okay, go get abstinent, I would not have known what the hell to do. I mean, I, I would have said, okay, I would think sugar is a problem. So I, I need to take that out of my my diet. But I mean, how much sugar? You know, what what foods that have some sugar in it, not sugar in it? I mean, how does that that work? And I mean, yes, I'm going to talk about abstinence here. I'm going to talk about food here because food is my alcoholic substance. As a matter of fact, there are multiple things, multiple foods that are alcoholic to me, multiple food ingredients that I need to make sure are not in my food plan. And that took a sponsor guiding me and showing me and and, and helping me put a food plan together with a nutritionist or a dietitian or a doctor so that I knew exactly what was abstinent and what was not. I needed to understand for me because anything that triggered my obsession then triggered my compulsion to overeat. So I needed a clear line in the sand. And for me, what I came to find out, my alcoholic foods were sugar, high-fat, flour, and oh, that slippery, tricky one, volume. You know, I had some of my worst binges starting on free, quote, free foods from diets like carrots. Or you can eat as much as you want because as soon as I got going on that compulsion to throw food down my throat, then I always wound up in my allergic substance, in that sugar, in that high fat, in that flour type of substances. But I'm telling you what, volume was a real tricky one for me, which is why those boundaries, some need that, some don't. But for me as a bulimic, I needed to know exactly when my meal started, when my meal stopped, and what was in it was not going to trigger my obsession. And so that was very, very important for me. You know, I can't put the plug in the jug if I don't know what jug to put it in. I have more than one alcoholic substance that I have to deal with and not have in my food plan. And I need to know what they are and I need to know in what volumes they are in so that I do not trigger my compulsive overeating and my bulimia. I also needed to know what it was to to feel full and to feel satiated. You see, the only thing I knew prior to program was starving and on, on amphetamines and cocaine and diet pills, you know, on a diet or not on a diet, binging and purging. It was that extreme for me. So I never really felt full for a very long time. Or put it this way, I never really felt satiated. So for me to sit down as a bulimic, eat a meal, and finish that meal, and then sit and let it be digested was was a tough fall. And I'm telling you, this program is not about the tools, but I worked the tools, my, I worked my ass off with the tools because I needed help in dealing with some of those things. You know, I'm not a tools versus a steps girl. I'm a both girl. I'm a, you know, they say the tools are the, the, the handrails you use as you walk up the steps. You know, the tools are there for a reason. And I picked up the phone as much as I could. And for a while, I had to bookend my meals because I had to say, I'm starting my meal, I'm going to finish my meal, and I'm going to call you when I'm done with my meal to say I'm sitting to let this food stay in my stomach and not trigger my bulimia. 
I needed to, I needed help with that. It did not take long to get through that and understand what it what it was to feel actually full, satiated, and nourished. That was really something for me, and it's a miraculous thing that I can say again it brings me to tears that I know what it is to feel full, satiated, and nourished, and the food doesn't call to me as it used to as it used to. But I needed to learn how to do that as a bulimic. Uh, I needed to know what a weight range was. For me, I lived my entire life by the numbers on the scale. I needed to commit to not getting on a scale more than once a month. I needed to know what a weight what a weight range was going to be for me, and I needed to accept that weight range. Because, you see, I use that weight range as a buffer to feel okay or not okay about me. And I needed to get that from a nutritionist and my sponsor, and we came to an agreement and a commitment on what that weight range was. was. Because as a bulimic with anorexic tendencies, because remember, my I did play with that for a while and got down pretty doggone low, was I needed to know what that weight range was and make a commitment. You know, it's about accountability and honesty and integrity in this program, about rigorous, rigorous honesty. And even in abstinence, I had to stay committed to that. And I also had to stay committed to exercise because I wouldn't trust my food plan without my exercise. And I needed to understand what it was to be okay, whether or not with my food plan, whether or not I was exercising. And that was a big one. I don't know many believers who don't have issues with exercise, compulsive exercise. I've given my knees to this disease of compulsive exercising with my bulimia. I just remember sitting on the treadmill with the elliptical, or I don't know, they didn't have ellipticals back then, I guess uh, Stairmaster saying this is for the pint of ice cream, this is for the dozen cookies. I mean, we all know that obsession. And I know that's not exclusive to bulimics as well, but it's really strong and was very strong in me. You know, so I used the tools of the program to help me with that as I was working the steps. I think the problem is, is when we make the tools the solutions that it becomes the problem. It's not the solution. It's how I use the tools to help me work the steps. You know, if I'm going to do a fourth and fifth step, i got to pick up a pen and put it to paper. If I write gibberish, well, of course, it doesn't mean anything. But if I use my pen to put to paper to work my fourth step, then that's a valuable use of my tool of reading and writing and working the steps. I mean, it talks about in the steps. We don't talk our steps four and five. I write. We write. And that's an invaluable tool for me as I work the steps. So, yes, I'm talking about tools here. I'm talking about food plans. I'm talking about um, all of these things. But for me as a bulimic, it was very, very important to get those things in place so that there was nothing blocking my spiritual growth. For me, spiritual maintenance is step zero, the prerequisite of putting the food down and then getting on the business of working the steps to bring me a spiritual transformation, to bring me that personality change so that I didn't have the mental obsession anymore. You know, it talks about on page 164, it says here, uh, excuse me, one, yeah, 164, yes, it, that we read every day in the end of our Vision for You meeting. It says, God will constantly disclose to you, to, and God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who's still sick. And it says, the answers will come if your own house in, is in order. But obviously you can't transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. So this is the great fact. So the fact is, is that this solution works if your own house is in order. And when I think about, I mean, I love, what do you call it, out, uh, um, I love 
pictures and I love analogies. And when I think of your own house in order, you know, what do we do to keep our houses in order? What I do as a wife, as, as a mother, is, you know, I make sure everything is in its place. Everything that I'm using is in a cupboard. When I talk about using, everything is in a cupboard. Everything is in its place. That's why I like to think about step zero as my abstinence. Everything is in its place so that I can go about the business of keeping my house in order. And then my inventory of myself is what I do when I'm vacuuming and cleaning my house. So, you know, I'm keeping my house in order by putting everything I use in its place. And then I'm vacuuming on a regular basis to keep my house clean so that my house is in order. So then I am free. I have no blocks. I am free to connect with my higher power, whom I choose to call God, so that I can then be of maximum service to go on the firing lines and carry this message to the still compulsive overeater. That is my job. That is my privilege. That is my responsibility. And it is how I stay recovered myself. So just to end with the newcomer, If you're new on this line and you're like, oh, my gosh, what the hell is she talking about? Maybe you can relate to my story. But let me just tell you what the big book says about this. And for those of you who want to follow along, I'm going to be flip-flopping between page 25 and page 163. And I'm going to wrap with this. It says here, if you are as seriously alcoholic as we were, we believe there is no middle of the road to no middle-of-the-road solution. We're in a position where life is becoming impossible and we have passed to the region from which there was no return through human aid. We had but two alternatives. One was to go on to the bitter end, blotting out the consciousness of our intolerable situation as best we could, and the other was to accept spiritual help. That is this program and these 12 steps. But if you are saying on page 163, I'm jittery. I'm alone. I can't do that. But you can. You forget that you have just now tapped into a source of power much greater than yourself. To duplicate with such backing what we have accomplished, this program, these 12 steps, is only a matter of willingness, patience, and labor. And if you go back to page 25, it says, there is a solution. Almost none of us like the self-searching, the leveling of our pride, the confession of shortcomings, which the process requires for successful consummation. But we saw that it really worked in others, and we had come to believe in the hopelessness and futility of life as we had been living it. When, therefore, we were approached by those in whom the problem had been solved, there was nothing left for us but to pick up the simple kit of spiritual tools laid at our feet. We have found much of heaven, and we have been rocketed into a fourth dimension of existence, which we had not even dreamed. And I can honestly tell you for me, to, to, to sit here on the phone with you with 29 years is absolutely a fourth dimension of mind-blowing existence for me. This program has not only saved my life, it has given me a life beyond my wildest, my wildest imagination. I am not only free from the obsession of compulsive overeating, and my, what used to be my only response to life, which was to binge and purge. But I have been given tools and I've been equipped to handle life on life terms that I never dreamed possible. There really should be an anybody's anonymous because everybody can benefit from these tools. But more than anything, I've been given a relationship with a higher power, with a God that I no longer have to fear or control anymore. I am no longer alone. I do not have to do this alone. 
I have you, I have this fellowship, I have these 12 steps, I have God, and I have purpose. I have purpose now because I can carry a message of depth and weight. I can share a story of hope. I can help others. It has given me purpose. It has given me a life within my wildest dreams. So if you're new here, it is possible. This fourth dimension, this life is possible. If this is for you, if you believe, even think that you might be a compulsive overeater because that's the only requirement for membership, a desire to stop compulsively overeating, to stop being anorexic, to stop being bulimic. If you even think that's the case, welcome to Overeaters Anonymous. Welcome home. And with that, I'll pass. Thank you so much, Amy, for sharing your miraculous story of transformation with all of us this morning. Thank you for offering so much of yourself this morning. Amy's contact information will be given at the conclusion of this recording, so please stay tuned for that. And now we will transition to questions. If you have a question for Amy, please press star 1 to unmute and identify yourself. Esther C. Esther C. Tony W. Is that Tony W.? Maura Z. Maura Z. Okay, let's start with that. Esther C. Thanks so much. Thank you, Amy. Um, As an obese teenager, I used to be jealous of people like you, but not when I came into the program of recovery and I started to hear the stories of the bulimics, understanding that they were suffering as much as I was. Anyways, my question is the following. I mean, even years later, do you find that you have medical or physical uh, wreckage from having abused your body? And, And what's your attitude or what do you do about that when something comes up and you realize it was those years of abuse that, you know, caused whatever it is you're suffering now? Yes, absolutely. There are consequences. And that was the reality that I had to face in recovery. There, there's no doubt. And um, I honestly say that, you know, it says we will not regret the past. I wish to shut the door on it. And um, when I came up against those things, for example, I wreaks such havoc with my body. I I had a lot of trouble getting pregnant once I was married, and I've had a lot of physical consequences uh, that I had to take care of as a result of the damage that I've done to my body through compulsive exercise and bulimia. But I I think, you know, in the long run, um, I've had to press into God and my higher power in this program when those things came up while I was in recovery, while I am in recovery, you know, living life on life's terms. And the reality is, is that as I pressed into my higher power, I realized that, you know, life is just not fair. And somehow I bought into that myth that life was supposed to be fair. And the reality was if life was fair, I'd be dead of this disease. I'd be dead. There's no two ways about it. And so anything ahead of that is is gravy if you excuse the pun. And that doesn't take away the feelings that I had when things happened and those consequences that I had to deal with as a repercussion of that that behavior, but I kept pressing in and looking forward and saying, you know what, today the miracle is that I am abstinent and I am recovered today. That is a miracle. So if God can help me with that miracle, then God is going to help me through this miracle. And I got to bid, I got down to business if I needed to do more fourth and fifth step work, more sixth and seventh step work, more 10 through 12, whatever was necessary I was willing to do to be relieved of any type of self-pity of any type of anger about what was lost. I mean, I lost 
for all intents and purposes, through my bulimia, my compulsive overeating, and of course my drug and amphetamine addiction, I lost most of my adolescence into my 20s. It's a blur. It's just a painful, torturous blur. But I can't look back on that anymore and say anything but say it brought me where I am today, and I would not trade the life that I have today because of this program. And now I'm equipped with tools and steps to handle those issues when they come up, when they do. Because let's face it, we can't abuse our body for decades and not have repercussions from it. I hope that helps. Yes, thank you. Thanks, Esther C. Someone is unmuted and making quite a bit of noise on the line, so please attend to that. Thank you. If everybody could stay muted unless they're speaking, that'd be great. Okay, Tony W. Uh, this is Tony W. I'm a compulsive overeater in South Carolina. Can you hear me? I can. Well, that was me that was unmuted. I do apologize. Okay, all right. Go right ahead with your question, uh, Tony. Amy, thank you so much for your share. It meant so much to me as a former bulimic and beginning the steps again. My question mm-hmm. was that you mentioned three, and I couldn't understand if you said F's as in Frank or S, uh, three things, and I wanted you to repeat those. I didn't get that. Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, the three F's in, as in Frank. So... When you're responding to what is a weak share or something, it's, yes, I have felt the way, I feel the way, I know how you feel. That was the first F. I know how you feel. All right. And I have felt that way. That's the second F. Feel, felt, I have felt that way. And the third F is I have found, by the grace of God and these 12 steps and this you know big book, I have found another way. And open up the big book and let her rip. Thank you so much. Sure. Thank you, Tony W. Mara Z. Thank you, Leah. Thank you, Amy, so very much for opening up this compulsive overeater's eye to the life of a bulimic. I am forever changed. Hmm. You mentioned, um, and I and I perhaps missed it, when you spoke of it, but excuse me, you mentioned there were specific pointers or differences that a non-bulimic should be aware of when sponsoring a bulimic, and I somehow missed it. Would you mind repeating that? Uh, Well, the the basics were um, knowing how to feel full and satiated and understanding how that is for a bulimic because we don't let ourselves stay stay full. So that was one. And working around that and and helping them to to do that. And perhaps that's what my sponsor did for me. And then the other one is the weight range and the scale, you know, having a weight range so that there's no messing around with having, quote, the space buffer. And the uh, exercise, so that is all encompassed in that one point there about making sure that the exercise, they're being honest with exercise. Um, they're being honest with the weight range and they're not getting on the scale 50 times a day, which is what I did. Um, so the scale had to go out the window and less once a month. And the exercise needed to be, um, for me, weighed and measured in my exercise. Um, I had to, I, for a while, I had to commit it because I would not 
I needed to, that to me was a trigger to, to be exercising at will was not something that I could do. And then the main thing, that those were the first two points. And then the main thing was also the very strong boundaries around my food plan so that I knew when a meal started, when a meal stopped, and what was in it because I needed to know exactly what that was to not trigger one of the biggest issues for bulimics, or at least for me as a bulimic, which is volume. Does that make sense? Does that help? Perfectly. Thank you so very much. Thank you so very much for your service today. Sure. Again, I can't put the plug in the jug if I don't know what jug to put it in. So it's very important that I spend some time, I as a sponsor do this, that I spend time, even with people who are not bulimics, understanding what their definition of abstinence is and that it's not with any allergic alcoholic substances. So that's some sort of boundary, understanding what that what that is. Um, it's important because, no, it's not about the food, but the food is the substance I used, okay? <laughs> food is the substance I used alcoholically, so I had to make sure I had that taken care of so that it didn't stand in the way of my step work. No gray areas for me. I hope that helps. Very much. Thank you. Thanks, Maura Z. Who else has a question for Amy? Hi, this is Mia in Ohio. Mia. Anyone else? Star one to unmute. This is in Florida. I heard Florida. I, I didn't catch the name. Becca. Becca. And there was another voice. Deborah. Deborah. Deborah M. M. Yes. Okay. Anyone else? Marla. Marla. Martha. Did I hear a Martha? Yes. Martha S. Martha S. And Marla, your last initial, please. S also, S like Sam. Excellent. Okay, let's start off with Mia, please. Hi, thank you. It's Mia, and the last initial is S also, um, recovering from compulsive overeating food addiction in Ohio. And I have a follow-up on the previous question. I'm not understanding what is being referred to when um, with weight range. Um, The way that I could relate to that um, I have a way that I can relate to that, but I wasn't sure if that's what was meant. So the, the way that I can relate to it is that throughout the day, I my belly kind of distends a bit, not because I'm overeating, but, you know, so just there's like a fluctuation in, you know, or like when I would get my period, there'd be a fluctuation of, of like size, um, not necessarily weight, but I remember I first told my sponsor, you know, like, well, I think my weight fluctuates, like, by five pounds or so. And she was like, what? Your weight shouldn't be fluctuating. And I said, well, I'm not sure. I don't weigh myself, but it's, you know, I just know that there are times when my body's a little bit bigger, a little bit, you know, not because I'm changing my food around or anything, but um, so I had to just be okay with that, you know, like, well, that's, just fine. The body's going to shift a little bit here and there and, you know, that's all right. My food is clean and I'm working, you know, the rest of my recovery program. So I was wondering if that's what you meant or what what you actually meant about the weight range. Thank you. I passed. 
Well, um, I can just speak to my own experience with that is that as a bulimic, I was obsessed with numbers, weights, scales, you know, what my number was on the scale because I used that to define me. You know, I, I, I was obviously not connected to a higher power working a program, so my response to how I was going to feel about myself was, you know, if I thought I was thin, and if I thought I was thin, that means I had to have a certain number on the scale, and this is constant obsession about numbers on a scale. So in order for me to be free of that obsession, uh, I had to work the steps. But if I was still constantly getting on the scale and obsessing what my weight was, then I, I couldn't be free to uh, work the steps. So when I meant boundaries around the weight, it meant, one, that I was committing to um, not getting on the scale, so I didn't even start that process except for once a month. But obviously I had to know, for example, I came into the program needing to put on a few pounds. I was coming out of my anorexic phase. And so that for me meant that I had to know that there was a range that I was shooting for or there's a range that you're coming down to so that I wasn't obsessing. And that weight range is something that was given to me by a a, a nutritionist, dietitian, doctor, so that I knew what that weight range was. I don't know many of us that just weigh the same every single time they get on the scale. Maybe some people do. But for me, there was always a a range because of fluctuation, like you said, for a period or whatever. But, I mean, this was just a one, you know, couple-minute conversation because obviously the focus is not on all of this weight and all this kind of stuff, but it was an issue. But So I had just put it in a boundary real quick so that I could not be obsessing about it. And my range did fluctuate, but I had to be careful because I didn't want to be playing around in my mind about what that number on the scale was. So does that, does that answer your question? I was trying to track with what you were asking. I mean, I'm not, I'm not a doctor. I can't say whether your range is, is going to fluctuate or not going to fluctuate. I can tell you after sponsoring for a long time that usually most people, you know, fluctuate within a few pounds and that that's normal. But it's what it does to us mentally that's the issue, and for me, mentally. I hope that helps. Thank you, Mia, for your question. Becca, your turn. Hi. Thank you. This is Becca. I am recovered in Florida compulsive overeater, anorexic, and bulimic. Um, thank you so, so much. Um, oh, I relate to everything that you shared, um, sadly and then wonderfully, because, as you said, this is a spiritual program. And what I had to find was this loving God, and I couldn't do that without working these steps or a coverage sponsor, reading and studying God, and this is just for me knowing that I could have this intimate relationship with this power greater than myself because it says lack of power was my dilemma. And you said so clearly it wasn't about my food. But, yes, I had to know the um, the substances, the alcoholic substances that were a problem for me. And by finding this God when I was absolute honest, absolutely honest, absolutely unselfish, absolutely pure, and absolutely loving, the four absolutes that we learn in program, I I had a beginning, and I could find this loving God. And listening to you and how you did that and the beautiful, elegant way of your how you expressed your story and yourself and your unselfish love to share with us, I am so grateful and 
just thank you so much from the bottom of my heart. I'm I'm abstinent today because of people like you in my life. And most important, our God of our understanding and this big book in 12 Steps. And my recovered sponsor. So thank you for letting me share. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Becca. Deborah M. Hi, this is Deborah M., a recovered compulsive overeater from Pennsylvania. Can you hear me okay? Great. Great. Thanks so much, Emmy, for your honesty. I related because I'm an exercise bulimic, and I used to just either I was a couch potato, just binging, or I was up and running and uh, dieting. Um, Your mind that really jumped out at me, and I could feel your emotion when you said it, that you needed to feel full, satiated, and nourished. And for me, I had to get comfortable being thin and not just doing the up and down stuff. I came in in 84, you and I have similar track record here. Um, but I wanted to say, see if you could talk more about how do you do that, because I still find now that, I mean, I do meditation, the 11th step, but to really be stable, feel abundant, feel okay, I uh, can still create sort of the chaos in other ways. And I was just wondering how do you really with that fullness and kind of the fullness of God's love, just that abundance that comes from living um, and practicing the step. Uh, I think for for me, it's all about 10, 11, and 12. Well, mostly 11 and 12, but, uh, you know, it's 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 a constant trans it's a constant spiritual maintenance. Uh, You know, they say a, a daily reprieve and, um, uh, you know, I'm constantly working my 11th step and trying to grow and press in to my God about, you know, all of these things. And, um, I mean, I don't know about you all, but meditation, as you had said, meditation is a huge part of of connecting as well as service work. And, I mean, I, I got a number of a number of solutions on my step 11 for that kind of thing, specifically for feeling, you know, satiated and full. The other was to, you know, get up and move around and give service or make a phone call or do something like that after I was eating. And like I said before, I was bookending calls in the beginning saying, okay, I'm done and I'm going to now go and call to make three calls to somebody, a new in a program or something that would distract me. Or I could sit and meditate for 10 or 15 minutes and I'm going to call you again when I'm done. Um, like I said, I worked my ass off with the tools and on some of those things to help me as I worked my, you know, 10, 11, and 12 too. But, I mean, basically it's a combination for me of, of doing um, action steps and of, uh, you know, working the steps and prayer and meditation. I mean, it's a little bit of all of that. I'm sorry it's not a specific answer, but I, it's a little bit of everything. To uh, to work with to, to to deal with that situation. I hope that made sense. <laughs> yeah, great. Thank you very much. Sure. Thank you, Deborah. Marla S. Hi there, Amy. Thank you so much. This is Marla. I'm recovered in Iowa. Um, I loved your presentation. I didn't catch the beginning of it, but uh, one question that I have is: I've worked with sponsees that. Um, just are very, very dead set on the idea that, no, I don't have any specific foods that trigger my allergy. I could binge on anything. And, you know, they I, we just really look at, you know, what <clears throat> what are your particular alcoholic foods that you're allergic to, da, da, da. And some are just like, no, 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 it's just, 
anything. I could binge on carrots and celery. So, um, and I guess I just wonder what you do about sponsees like that that are only saying it's just eating in general. Do do you have people like that? And if so, how do you work with them? Or are they in denial? I mean, what do you suggest? And that's my question. Thank you. Um. But are you saying that they don't? I mean, just for clarification, are are you saying that they're they're balking at at creating a, a, a some sort of boundaries around a food plan? Like they're balking at at working the program? Uh, they just don't know which foods they should put down because they think all foods do the same thing to them. So I didn't know if I should just work with them then ongoing with boundaries around quantity, weighing and measuring then, or if we really need to just keep going, now, which ones do you eat more of or send you over the edge, you know? Um, but they're not balking about a food plan, but I didn't know what we do with their food plan if they can't identify specific foods that trigger that. Yeah, you can go down a rabbit hole there. I, I really feel like as soon as you can get working the steps, the better. So get a healthy food plan based on whether they need to gain or lose weight or they're just maintaining weight and get a healthy food plan that uh, that serves them, um, you know, their lifestyle, their age. And, you know, go to, like, we don't, I don't, you know, I don't tell people what <laughs> what their food plans are. They, they go get one from a nutritionist or a dietitian that is mm-hmm. a professional to handle that. So I would send them to one and then I would get to the business and let the program do what the program's gonna do and let the disease do what the disease is gonna do because pretty pretty soon if they're if they're eating um a food plan that is has anything, it'll be revealed. Like I, I think the disease always works its way out if we're still do you know what I mean? Like I would get yeah. to the business of working the steps, get a food plan for that person and see how it goes. And then I think things will start to be revealed if they need to be fixed, you know, if okay. there is food. You know? Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. Just kind of start it off and get boundaries around it. And yeah. then if they have specific foods that are triggering them more than others, they'll learn it as they go. Well, yeah, if they want to eat popcorn every single day, you know what I mean, for their yep. starch, you know, well, that that might be a problem then, you know. And, and then in the meantime, you're working on your steps. So, you know, you're trying to find some rigorous honesty as well because my guess is maybe there's some of that going on as well. So it all gets revealed, but get, you know, get down, get down to it. Don't get down the rabbit hole of this, that, and the other food, you know. Okay, thank you very much. Sure. Martha S., thank you, Marla. Martha S., your turn. Yes, thank you. This is Martha S. Thank you, Amy, and thank you, Leah, for your service. My question, Amy, is about uh, toxic meetings, I guess. Um, I've been going to a, three face-to-face meetings, two of which are big book OA meetings, and one is 12 and 12. And uh, my sponsor and knows that I'm struggling with the one that is the, not a big book meeting. Um, for about a year now, I've been going regularly. And my question is, do you have any suggestions when um, people in a meeting basically are speaking a different language because they're not talking about the instructions in the big book. And for me, it's second nature to refer to the big book. And I I just feel like it's always like a collision. And I know that I'm not supposed to be colliding or I should see fighting in my head, but it feels like um, very, very, very uh, challenging to sit there and try to share my experience when it well we're not speaking the same language. If you have any tips, I would I would love it. Thank you. 
Well, in my humble opinion, um, the reason why we need a revival in these meetings is because they aren't speaking. They aren't speaking the language of the big book. So, yes, it's going to be difficult. And, yes, you're going to be speaking different than in some of these meetings than anyone has ever even heard. So, but, you know, you're you're opening up the big book. And, again, this is all with the prerequisite of you being recovered and where you can get strength at other meetings. I wouldn't say, like, okay, everybody just go to week meetings and share when you're recovered. I mean, I, I have strong meetings that I go to, you know what I mean, where I get what I need. I have, but I also make a point of, you know, making sure that their meetings are, are, are in the area are strong by going to some of those meetings and being the uncomfortable one, being not the uncomfortable one, being the one that shares the message that others aren't going to agree with. I mean, if you, if you, if I shake up a meeting, then I'm feeling good because I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing, which is they've never, I mean, think about it. I didn't, I think it's so important that they hear something that something is being said that's different. I mean, how do we change if we're not doing something different? If my job is to get on the firing line, I mean, a firing line, what does that mean? It means you're sitting, a firing line means that you're sitting within fire. You know, you're a target. So, yes, it's going to be difficult. So make sure you have your house in order. You know, you're spiritually fed and you make sure you get to some of those meetings and not entirely, but be willing to share what is uncomfortable and what may make some people angry, or maybe that one person like me that needed to hear what it is that needs to be said and think, oh my gosh. And then what I do is I direct them to strong meetings, not to kill the meeting that's the weak one, but if that meeting stays weak, I need to direct people to where, because I can't sponsor everybody, right? So you direct them to strong meetings, but you speak at some of the weaker meetings and you'd be willing to be on the firing line knowing that God's got you. And there's nothing like going to one of those meetings where it's difficult and it's comfortable to walk out of it and go, thank you, thank you, God, that I have recovery. Thank you, God, that I have the message that works. You know, may I continue to be on the firing line to carry your message of hope and recovery. Does that help? Yes, that's awesome. Thank you so much. Great. Thank you, Martha. Who else has a question for Amy this morning? This will be our final presentation. Charles. Uh, This is A.N.K. Kathy from Boston. And Anne from North Carolina. Okay. Anne from Montreal. Who's in Montreal? Kathy C. Kathy C. And I heard Kathy K. Okay. Linda B. Anne-Marie M. Linda B. Is that Anne-Marie M. that I'm hearing? Yes. Okay. All right. That's a good crew. I've got the following. If I missed you, please let me know. Charles H., Linda B. I have an Anne. Katie G., I think I heard you. Is that correct? Yep. Okay. Kathy K., Kathy C., Anne Marie M. Okay, let's start with Charles H. First of all, thank you, Amy G, for such a uh, clear cut um, share. Um, so my question is, I know if I if I heard you correctly, um, you stated that 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 your your sponsor uh, aided uh, with your food plan because you needed that. As a as a recovered sponsor, um, 
and and I don't know if you're a doctor or not, and no pun intended. How much how how much do you feel compelled to assist a sponsee um, in developing their food plan, or do you feel or do you feel um, compelled to to uh, suggest the nutritionist or a dietitian? And with that, I pass. Thanks. Uh, uh, thanks, Charles. I um, it varies. I mean, if you know, some people, it just depends on, I mean, I take it on an individual basis. I don't have any, like, uh, absolutes on that at all. I mean, I truly believe that we are all individuals uh, and how we come to the program. For example, uh, if I, how I would counsel someone who says, you know, someone who's been slipping and sliding a lot but already in OA and understanding how OA works, you know, I would be getting down to step work right away. But I, my first question would be, you got a food plan? You know what's abstinent? You know what's not? And they say, yes, boom, I'm on. We're on to the steps. Because you know what? It is a program of rigorous honesty. I'm not going to mess around. If you've been in OA, I would assume you know what it is and what your allergic substances are. And if you tell me you got a food plan, then you got a food plan. I mean, the disease, you know it, Charles. The disease will reveal itself one way or the other if they're not being honest. I let the disease do what the disease is going to do. On the other hand, if, you know, I mean, if they're playing around with their food. On the other hand, if this is a brand spanking new, like me, for example, at 22 going, what is abstinence? What does that mean? What is even compulsive overeating? You know, I have no clue. Just tell me. Then I would absolutely say, well, this is how we see it. And what are the allergic substances? Like, I go into a little bit more depth. And then if they say, like me, I didn't know what it even was to eat three meals a day. And I mean, if someone had said to me food prep, I would have been like, what the hell is that? You know what I mean? I have no clue. So I would be a little bit more involved quickly. Do you know what I mean? Like I don't want to I don't want to mess around because it is about the steps, you know. But I would help them a little bit more, or I would maybe recommend saying, you know, go go somewhere, get 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 a food plan, so we can get on with it. You know, we need to get on with it. Step zero is just a hop skip. Let's go. But you know, within that process, if she had questions along the way or whatever then fine. I mean, I literally had someone come to the grocery store with me and help me read food labels because I didn't understand about the OS, OSEs, you know, the glucose or fructose and the sucralose and the, you know what I mean, or where to look for, you know, sugar and certain ingredients and things like that. I mean, I needed I needed a lot more help. And then sometimes there's people that are somewhere in between. So it, I take it on an individual basis, and then we go from there. I hope that helps, Charles. Thank you. Linda B. Hi, this is Linda D. D is in Delta from North Carolina. Thank you. Thank you. Amy, um, thank you so much. Uh, I'm a recover- newly recovered compulsive reader, and I just want to thank you so much for um, utterly convincing me that this is the same disease with a different manifestation um, because I am not bulimic anorexic, but I, I can relate on so many levels. Um, and I think uh, I just imagine that many, many people can. So you really got to the gritty, and I thank you for that. Um, my question is similar to Charles, just a tiny bit uh, of detail that wasn't covered in Charles's question. So, um, if, if you have someone who picks a, 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 a sponsor who picks a meal plan from the dignity of choice, and um, what I've often seen is that folks will pick the very low carbohydrate plan. Now this. The person that I'm thinking of specifically um, feels she can't afford the uh, 
the nutritionist, which was very useful to me because basically I got the right amount of food for nourishment, and then I check it out with my sponsor to make sure it's um, obstinate because my nutritionist is not a compulsive reader. But between the two guides, it's perfect. And I had a lot of trouble with making my own plan, taking back my will on food. Um, what I see happening, and I've seen it happening more than once, is that I think there's not enough food there for the person. I see them getting hungry. I see them binging. And, you know, they're not through the steps, so possibly it's emotional. But, you know, I hesitate. Uh, I, I want to say something like, you know, I don't think you're getting enough food. Um, but uh, I'm not supposed to say that. Uh, so I'm just wondering about that specific piece. Uh, I imagine others have run into that problem. Um, I can't afford the nutritionist. I'm picking dignity of choice. but it's not working because I think that uh, I want to, maybe it's a mild form of restricting. I don't know. I hope that makes sense. Um, if you need me to clarify, I will. That I um, sure. Uh, and, you know, at the risk of pissing some people off, I, I guess, you know, this whole thing about I can't afford a nutritionist. I mean, I'm not a doctor and I cannot prescribe to someone what is going to be the right amount of calories for them. I just can't go there. I mean, sure, I can say to someone, and I don't think there's any reason why you can't, you know, look, if you're telling me you're starving in between meals, then you need to be putting more food. I don't think there's any reason why you shouldn't say that. If they're saying they're starving, you know what I mean, they're really hungry, then say, yeah, then you need to be putting food in, but I, or increasing your food, but I don't dictate that. I, it has to be you know, with a professional because I am not a doctor. I cannot prescribe that for you, and I'm not going to get into that with you. I'm your sponsor for your step work. Yes, step zero is the prerequisite, but I can't I can't dictate that for you, but I can say what I see. I can see a pattern, and that means that you need to go to a professional and get make sure that you are getting the calories that you need to function on a daily basis without being starving or hungry. And again, we do step work to make sure, is this true physical hunger or is this more of your spiritual, I'm restless, irritable, restless, irritable and discontent kind of hunger, you know? And sometimes you got to, you know, you got to work that. But this whole idea that I can't afford it, I'm like, well, then you need to save up. And when you can, get one, get your plan and then call me. I mean, I can't even imagine the thousands of dollars I've spent on binge food. And I'm not saying that people that aren't strapped. I mean, I wasn't even working when I got in, when I finally started working in this program. So I had to find a way to get that. And maybe the dignity of choice is great to get people started. I mean, that's what it's there for. OA has approved it. It's approved literature, you know, to go for it. But at some point, I mean, even when people come to me that have the dignity of choice, I say you turn right back around and you go to the nutritionist and you make sure that that suits you, that that is right for you. Because what, I mean, you're starting out at a deficit. If you already got a food plan that doesn't have something that's, you know, that's not good, that's not giving you the caloric, um, you know, intake that you, that you need, you know. And I, my feeling is I wanted, I wanted it bad enough, you know what I mean? I would have scrumped and saved pennies or whatever, and I did. I had to. And I was able to find an economical way to find a nutritionist and a dietitian to make sure that what I was eating um, was good because my sponsor said, I'm not sponsoring you unless you take and get a food plan from a licensed dietitian or nutritionist. And I don't want to write, and you know what? I didn't want to write my own food plan. I did not want to write my own food plan because I couldn't trust myself. My mind is my liability. Anyways, I'll stop with that. Thank you. Thank you, Linda D. <laughs> Ask me how I really feel. <laughs> <laughs> um.
<laughs> it's all good. Anne, your turn. Yes. Anne K, recovering compulsive overeater on step eight. Yeah, I have a question on uh, the bulimia itself. Uh, do you differentiate between using a tool and just uh, because of overeating, be- becoming bulimia, eating so much that you're bulimic? I've seen that in the rooms as well. Um, I'm not sure I understand what you're yeah, saying. Yeah, you, the way you described your uh, the progression of your disease, you got, were very ill and used instruments to create the bulimia. With me, I became bulimic just because I just couldn't stop eating. It just came out. Is that considered... Uh, my doctors considered that bulimia, by the way, because I sought medical help. And then within uh, a few months, found vision for you. And I'm abstinent today. Well, that is awesome. Um, mm-hmm. I just... Well... The reason what I what I meant by saying with the ladles and the spoons and the knives is that you know I was puking so much and so repetitively that um, and and consuming so much food that um, using my finger after a while I I couldn't get my finger down far enough to do to puke. Do you see what I'm saying? So it really wasn't meaning that I um, I, I need um, that I needed to you know, that my finger didn't work anymore. You know what I mean? It didn't work well enough for me at that point when it was so long over a long period of time. So that's that's what I, was what I meant. And for me, to classify bulimic is basically if it's going down and then it's coming back up, well, that's bulimic. Do you know what I mean? Besides, obviously, mm-hmm. stomach flu or something within reason. But if it's, you know, if you're if I'm eating till I'm full, and then I am regurgitating in any way, shape, or form, then I'm bulimic. That's what I'm doing. Whether it's easy or hard, that's what I'm doing. That's the consequence that I'm trying to not suffer to not get fat, which is really ridiculous when you think about it because I consume so much calories binging around the clock. that I literally, in six weeks, my freshman year of college, I put on 30 pounds binging and purging around the clock because you can consume all those calories. You can't get them all up no matter how hard hard you try. So in essence, I gained more weight in a shorter period of time as a bulimic than I did if I just would have been, you know, grazing and pinching because that's what the extent the bulimia did to me and the progression of my compulsive overeating because the compulsive overeating was first and is first. The bulimia was only the response. So Thank you. That helps me understand. Thank you. Thanks, and Kay. Katie G., your turn. Hey, Leah, may I be heard? Yep. Hi. Yes, you can. Leia? Oh, Katie sorry. G. <laughs> All right, thanks, guys. Uh, Katie G, recovered compulsive overeater, anorexic and bulimic, and Amy, it's a privilege uh, to hear you and walk um, on this path. Um, I just was wondering, and this may be um, a semantic issue, um, but I know that I always identify as a recovered compulsive overeater, anorexic and bulimic, because I feel like it's part of my my story and that compulsive overeating is part of my disease as is bulimia and anorexia. I do worry sometimes and I've heard from people sometimes that that might be me alienating or violating um, a tradition. Um, It might be alienating or violating people who are in the rooms who don't identify with that. And I certainly don't want to do that, but I do feel very passionately about continuing to identify because 
um, hearing other women who said, um, I don't know how to put on weight or, you know, I'm puking with um, exercise is what is keeping me alive today. Um, so I, I didn't know if you had any thoughts on that, having been in the rooms for um, a few 24 hours, and if you could speak to that. Um, I'm not sure where the tradition's being broken. Uh, what tradition are they saying you're breaking? I'm not sure that I completely understood it, but I know that I've heard that, you know, um, for singleness of purpose, I'm, I need to identify as a compulsive overeater. And um, for me, again, the um, bulimia and anorexia, I, I don't ever want to violate anything that's um, on this meeting or anybody who started it because it's obviously saving my life a day at a time. But I just um, didn't know if by saying, you know, anorexia and bulimia, anorexic and bulimic, if, I, if I'm doing that. And I know you're not the OA police. None of us are. <laughs> um, but I just <laughs> I didn't know if you had any thoughts on that. Well, I'll be honest with you. Uh, I, I mean, the whole reason why I'm speaking today, uh, same disease, different manifestation, is for that very reason. We have many alcoholics and anorexics, I mean, alcoholics, we have many bulimics and anorexics in this program where the, the manifestation of, of the disease is somewhat different, and I think it's important that we reach out to all levels of, of those in the rooms um, that are suffering from this devastating mental obsession and physical allergy and I, I, this disease, this devastating disease, be it compulsive reader, bulimic, or anorexic, which is why I'm sharing today. So in essence, you know, you're preaching to the choir, babe. I'm with you. And um, if that's something that you feel necessary to share, I don't see it if the tradition isn't being broken, um, if that's your calling to speak to those by qualifying your sh who you are, um, I I don't know, I don't see what the problem with that is unless it's being asked to not cause confusion to the newcomer. But if the newcomer is an anorexic or bulimic, how are they going to know or differentiate? How are they going to know? So um, I, I, I don't, I personally don't, don't have any have any problem with it. I guess is is my answer. I I don't see why that's not the case because we're all in here for the same reason, which is to get recovered. I hope that helps. It does. Thank you. Sure. Thank you, Katie G. Kathy K. Thank you, Leah, for your service, and thank you, Amy. It was wonderful to hear you. Um, I never heard your story before, and I. Really appreciate your recovery. This is Kathy Kay, recovered from Boston. You mentioned earlier in your talk the fact that you had to get over agnosticism, and clearly today you have a strong connection with your higher power through working steps 10, 11, and 12 on a daily basis. I wonder if you could highlight the turning points in uh, transcending your agnosticism and how you came to have a strong connection with a higher power. Um, thanks, Kathy. You know, I wish it was like an easy answer to that, but I can tell you very, very um, simply my turning point is when I knew the disease was going to kill me and I needed a power greater than myself. And at that point, uh, my sponsor gratefully said, you know, it doesn't have to be the God that you grew up with. It can be the power of the group, the 12 steps, and those who had recovered. And that as, as long as I was willing and honest and open, you know, then uh, that I would be fine, that it would work itself out. And that indeed was the case. By the process 
of working the 12 steps, I had a spiritual awakening. I mean, I really did. I had a spiritual awakening. I was willing to be open because I knew my way was killing me. And I knew that my mind, if left to my own devices, my mind would convince me that somehow, some way it would be rational to, uh, to binge and purge, you know, to put that compulsive bite in my mouth. I knew that I was doomed. So I had nowhere else to go. So I was willing and I was open and I was honest. And I did look at those who recovered in front of me and I said, well, you guys have got something I don't have. And that is a peace and serenity in your eyes. You're not binging. And, uh, you, you know, show me how. And I'm willing to rely on what the 12 step says. I mean, it talks about it on page 17. We have a common solution that we can absolutely agree, and it works. So I said, okay, if you guys says it works, because I am what you guys say I am in here. You've described me perfectly. Everything I read about Bill's story, I mean, there's a reason why they put it up there first to identify in, you know, with the doctor's opinion. I'm like, all right, that's me. That's definitely me then, okay, I'm going to do what you say that I need to do, and I'm going to be willing, even though I don't get the whole God thing yet. And she that's what she said. You don't have to get the whole God thing yet. You know, you don't have to believe an entire, you don't have to. You just need to be willing to take action and realize that your way is going to kill you. And I'm like, all right, got that. You know, check that off the box. Check that box. And as I proceeded through the steps, basically God became revealed to me. It became revealed to me. And then eventually... Through 10, 11, and 12, I started to actually develop a relationship. But throughout that process, I saw things in my life happen and promises come true in my life that could have been nothing other than a power greater than myself. I I could not explain it any other way. And so that was an evolution for me of moving away from my agnosticism. And also, like I said in my step work, the realization was not so much that I didn't believe God's existence. It's that I wanted to play God myself, you know? And when I put myself out of the way, I let the program work. I began to see a higher power revealed to me. And that was beautiful and beyond any type of other explanation that I can come up with other than a God in my life as I understood it. I hope that makes sense. Thank you, Amy. Thanks, Cassie K. Cassie C. Hi, this is Cassie C. from Montreal, Canada, Recovered Compulsive Eater. Thank you very much um, for this meeting this morning. Um, I have a question for you. It's actually three parts. I'd like to know, when you carry um, your um, sponsee um, through the steps, um, do you require from them to um, daily give you their 10 steps if if they come up? Um, And do you ask them to send you their nightly inventory? And last part, do you uh, require to speak to them every day or, or just once a week? How does that work? How do you, how do you sponsor them once, they, once you've done the steps with them? I hope that's clear. So they've completed the steps. They've already gone through yes. the steps, you mean? Um, yes. I, I leave it to them. No, I leave it to them. I let them decide what they want to do. I, I like to talk to my sponsees that are through the 12 steps at least somewhat regularly just to say, hey, how you doing? You know, let me know how they're doing and stuff because um, life happens and maybe there's more step work to be done or more 10th, 11th through 12th stuff. But, no, I don't require that they send it to me. They can. They certainly can, and I certainly appreciate it, and I'll continue to work with them pretty much as much as they want to work with me. But for the most part, no, I don't talk to them every day. Um, some I do. It just depends on where they are at, for a period of time, so to speak. Um, depending on what they're going through. And so if they have a 10-step, they're welcome to give it to me. They're welcome to give it to someone else. 
I would say the bare basics once they're through step 12 is I like to talk to them at least once a week. And if something's coming up, then maybe a little more because we'll do some step work. But um, I let their higher power dictate to them what they need because they're recovered. I'll offer suggestions, you know what I mean? But I don't, I don't tell that they have to do any of that, no. Okay. One last question, if, um, if I may. Um, so you don't, um, not insist, I don't want to word, use the word insist, but suggest that they also go out and, sp- and sponsor and you uh, question them and how they're doing in their 12th step of getting, you know, newcomers, working with others. Like, do you uh, ask them on that? Is that part of, do you think that's well, part we've of your... Uh, yes, well, we've already gone through that. I mean, there's stuff that I require to even sponsor them that I 